the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Afternoon. It's a, it's a Monday afternoon of the show. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and you are tuning in to the Monday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, as you have been hearing, if you've been listening to the show, Pastor Ron is on vacation starting this week. His vacation will continue into next week. And so while he is gone, I have the great privilege of filling in for him on this radio show and if you're a regular listener, you know what we do. We, we take your calls and questions, questions about the Bible, questions about uh, church life, how to put the Word of God into practice in your own life, anything we can do to help you fall deeper in love with Jesus. That really is the whole purpose of this show. So for the two weeks that I get to host this show, uh, that means... Uh, everything will continue as it usually does. We'll take your calls and questions. It also means that I get to share the studio with my lovely wife, May, who will be here on Thursday. So both Thursday this week and next week, she will join me here in the studio for the date day edition. All right. So let me give you the numbers to call in. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. That's the local number. There's a toll-free number if you want to call in if you're out of the listening area. And that is 877-630-5757. 877-630-5757. The email address if you want to submit questions that way is questions at calvarysa.com. You can also submit questions using our mobile app. That's the Calvary Chapel uh, of San Antonio mobile app. There is a form there uh, to submit questions. You just fill it out and we'll get it. And if you also want to listen live, use the KSLR app, especially if you're in your car. It's, It's real easy. You hit the call now button at the top. And instead of dialing, you can just click that and then it'll connect you right to the studio. And you can ask your question on the air. 
Well, like I said, it is Monday, and that means uh, we had a great weekend here at church at Calvary Chapel. I hope you had the same at your church. I hope somebody got saved. I hope people that were already saved got encouraged. I know that was the that was the case here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, in fact, yesterday we have three services, and the very first service, I had noticed that there was somebody here that I've never met before, never seen them before, and that is normal here because every week there's just new people. But there's this one particular person that stood out to me. Like I said, never seen him before. After the altar call, uh, I went up to him in his chair, introduced myself, and within 10 seconds, I knew that well, the Lord made, made it clear that this guy was just ready, ready for the Lord. In fact, it's what he said. And I love that because it wasn't anything that I did special. I made an attempt, uh, took the initiative to go and say hi to him and introduce myself, talk about being born again. And, and the Holy Spirit started to work in his heart. And then he gave his life to the Lord. What a beautiful thing. So, Carl, I don't think you're listening, but if you are, welcome to the family of God. Oh, one quick programming note. So, uh, Monday, we usually have our Monday night studies here at Calvary Chapel. Pastor Ron has been saying this. Let me reiterate today, there are no Monday night Bible studies. No men's study, no women's study. And no youth studies. Those will be off for the time that Pastor Ron is gone. That means this Monday, today, no studies. And next Monday, no studies also. And we resume, I think, July 10th is when we start that again. Okay. Let, I do have some questions submitted. I gave you the phone numbers. Let me get right to them. The first one is from Jonathan. Actually, Jonathan submitted a few the first one from Jonathan says this, what is the full scope of love your neighbor as yourself? In Matthew, it makes clear that you are to love everyone, including your enemies. But to what extent does that love go? Are there any boundaries? Jonathan, this is a great question. And so, this comes from Mark chapter 12. In fact, I'm going to put my glasses on here and actually read the verse here because this is actually a quote from Deuteronomy. The, the Hebrew Shema, Jesus speaking, says here, the most important one, this is verse 29 of Mark 12, answered Jesus, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the Hebrew Shema. That would be what practicing Jews would recite twice daily, once in the morning and once at night. But then Jesus continues and says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now this is interesting because what Jesus does here is he doesn't add to it there is a second part to it, which is an elaboration of what the first commandment is. And he says, these two are one. In the beginning, he says in verse 29, this is the most important one. Saying these two are wrapped into one commandment. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, what he's saying is, 
you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the outworking of that is loving your neighbor. In fact, you cannot love God and not love your neighbor. John writes in 1 John chapter 4 that if someone says that they love God, but they hate their brother, then he is a liar. He goes on to say, John does, that you can't love God and hate somebody else. You're a liar. Now, this is a challenge. This is hard for us because even professing Christians have this misconstrued idea that you can have a vertical relationship with God, loving God, and at the same time maintain a hatred or a broken relationship or anger, resentment, and bitterness towards a horizontal relationship with somebody else. And this is to misunderstand what love really means. Are there people that hurt us? Yes, there absolutely are. Are there people that have harmed us or that that have done things to us that we have built up resentment towards in our past? Sure. When we become born again, we enter into a love relationship with Jesus, that old love goes away. That means the best love that Ken could offer somebody else is no longer the standard. It is the agape love of God that he has poured into my heart. That's the kind of love I need to have towards my neighbor, because that's the love that God has towards me. The problem is when we maintain or hold on to a grudge or bitterness towards anyone, no matter what they've done, what we're doing is we are exercising our love, Ken's best love, towards people while we are freely receiving God's best love towards me, God's best love towards us. And that's not how it works. So the full scope, Jonathan, of this, the the question, when you ask, what is the full scope of love your neighbor as yourself? It means that we love people, even our enemies, the way Jesus loves us. Your question says, but to what extent does that love go? Are there any boundaries So there's no boundaries to our love, but the outworking of that love, it may look different. In other words, just because you love someone the way that Jesus loves them doesn't mean they'll receive it as love. Oftentimes, uh, we think that love means making somebody feel good. We think to love someone means to agree with whatever they say, even if it's wrong. And I would posit that it is unloving, absolutely unloving, to let someone live in a lie without letting them know that they're wrong. Now, that doesn't mean 
uh, we go around and criticizing people and telling them everything that's wrong with them. But the love of God that has been deposited into our hearts as born-again Christians is the same love that, that Jesus looked at us, not based on our performance, but based on who he is and his love for us. It's unconditional and it's not performance-based. Therefore, my love towards others is not going to be conditional or based on their performance. Meaning, if they are not a nice person, I'm not going to love them less. Now, will they receive it? They may not receive it. That also means to us, too, we, we need to speak directly in love. You know, a lot of people always say, Christians, they say, yeah, but you always got to speak in love. That's true. That's a given. We always speak in love the same way Jesus speaks to us. But there are times, often, when Jesus will speak to us very directly. And that's loving. When I'm wrong, Jesus speaks very directly to me. Well, that's the same way we love others. So, Jonathan, I, I hope that helps. One, one thing about uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, and as it relates to this passage about the refer, re- referencing in Mark 12, the Hebrew Shema, I really, I really love how Jesus ties in the practical application of what this love looks like. And again, John writes it in his first epistle, chapter 4. If you want to know in your own life if the love of God is the center of how you view people, if it really is the lens through which you, you see people, whether they're saved or unsaved, all you need to do is look at First John chapter 4, the practical application of what the love of God looks like is so clear. And it's I love it because if there's anything wrong in my heart, if there's any conviction that needs to take place, if my love towards people is different than God's love towards me, he'll bring it about really quickly. So Jonathan, thank you for your question. Love your neighbor as yourself, as no limits. Are there boundaries? There's no boundaries to that love, but the love of God poured out unto others may not be or oftentimes is not the same love that the world expects. So I hope that helps. Let me check if we have any calls. We do not have any calls. Back to the other questions that have been submitted. The next one, actually Jonathan submitted another one, so I'm going to go ahead and go to his. Jonathan asks again, different context, different question. What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Should you be a therapist for everyone? And since the chapter starts off with brothers and talks about those in the faith, should you bear the burdens of non-believers? Jonathan, good question. So you're referring to Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, and you're right. Paul writing to the church churches in the Galatian area writes in the sixth chapter uh, 
that we, brothers, we who are believers, should bear one another's burdens. But I think it's important here to understand the context, and you allude to it, so I'll elaborate. First of all, we shouldn't be a therapist. Your question asks, should you be a therapist for everyone? The answer is no. In fact, uh, whatever therapy anyone needs should come from the Bible. Now, your question, the second part of your question includes non-believers. When, when a non-believer asks you for counsel, questions, when they ask you for guidance or advice or whatever it may be, to the believer, we should take that as, what does the Bible say? Now, that may not be what they're asking, but on the tangent to your question, Jonathan, I, I want to emphasize how important it is for us believers to stay away from sharing our own personal experience, our own personal advice, our own guidance. I understand we all have them. We all have opinions. We all have experience that may or may not help somebody. But first and foremost, when an unbeliever comes to us with a question, we want to give them God's answer. Now, you don't have to pull out your Bible and, and, and quote verses, but what you should do is start off by giving God's perspective on their life situation, and maybe that'll open a door for them to receive Jesus as their Savior. Now, on to your question here. To bear one another's burdens simply means this. To be there for one another in the church. Like you said, this is addressed specifically to the body. But to bear one another's burden does not mean to solve all their problems. To bear one another's burden does not mean you take on the responsibility to devise a solution for their issues. To bear one another's burden does not mean that you start talking about how you solved that issue when you were going through something similar. Again, I understand that these are things that may seem to indicate they could help. But we need to refrain from offering our advice and simply say, this is what the Bible says. So what do you do when a non-believer comes to you with a burden? You share the word of God with them. You share the gospel with them. I have, I have time. I share a quick story. Uh, so May and I and our kids uh, just returned from our vacation. So we were out two weeks. Pastor Ron was here. And then when I returned, normal schedule is he and Paula go enjoy their time. And one of the prayers that May and I were praying prior to our trip is that God would use this vacation, this time, really to minister to whoever God brings to us. Now, we knew that there was going to be family that we were going to be dealing with and um, family issues, health issues, near and dear to our hearts. And so we wanted to make sure we were available 
to be a light and to a witness. But we also knew that there were some family members that we were going to see that we haven't seen in a while. And to make a long story short, one of the families, the cousins of May that that she hasn't seen in a long time, that I haven't seen in a very long time. This is a, one of the, young, the youngest cousin of all her relatives, I believe. And he knew me before I was saved. And, and so having seen me now and having conversation with him, it was obvious that not only was I a different person from before, but it was obvious that there was a stirring of their heart. When I say there, it was he and his wife and, and their, their kids. And, you know, we're having a conversation over dinner, uh, catching up with one another, and towards the end, and we're talking about what the Lord has been doing and what we do here, how I'm a pastor at the church and how our family's been going and some of the ministries at the church. They are not believers. They they have uh, experience growing up in Catholicism, some experience in, in Buddhism, uh, here and there, but they're not saved. And so they're interested, asking questions. Towards the end, one of them pulls me aside privately and says, Hey, can you you pray a blessing over our family? And I knew instantly this was an open door for the Lord. Uh, My answer was yes, absolutely. I would love to pray for your family, but let me tell you the real blessing that you need. This is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Explain the gospel message to them very clearly. And and uh, there was at that moment tears and emotion. It was obvious. It was the Holy Spirit. I didn't say anything that you don't read out of John chapter three, <laughs> but it was so beautiful because uh, there was a burden there. What was going on in their life and in their family? Good kids. I say kids. They're forty, younger than me, but there was a burden there that they were dealing with in their life, business, finance, and family-related stuff. Not outright sin, but obviously a a load that was overwhelming them. And I pointed them to Jesus. That's bearing their burden, taking their situation and showing how Jesus has a plan for their life and he wants to forgive them of their sin, even if that's not what they're asking after talking, it became apparent that's what they're looking for, and they gave their lives to the Lord. That's a beautiful thing. That's the, even if Galatians chapter 6 is bearing one another's burdens to those that are within the body of Christ, your question, Jonathan, about how we should share or bear burdens of non believers, that's a perfect picture. So, Ray and Alyssa, I don't think you're listening, but if you are, God bless you. Welcome to the family of God. You guys made our whole trip. Uh, Let me elaborate. We are inside of two minutes here, so I don't have time for another question. But I do want to share, Jonathan, this is the approach we should take. Bearing burdens does not mean solving their problems. Bearing 
one another's burdens means turning them to Jesus. If they're believers, they already know the Lord, and we get distracted because of life situations, turn their attention back to Jesus. Encourage them in the Lord. Sometimes bearing one another's burdens means you're just there. You're holding them, hugging them, letting them cry on your shoulder. You don't have to solve everything. Just be Jesus' arms and his mouth. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are done with the first half of the Monday edition of the Word Word Stand On For Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and I will be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and if you're just tuning into the show... This is the Monday edition of the Word to Stand Out for Life, our radio show where we take your Bible questions, questions about uh, doctrine, uh, how to put the Word of God into practice in your life. And it's a show normally hosted by my pastor, Pastor Ron, who is on vacation. So if you're just tuning in and you're hearing my voice, you are listening to the right show. You're expecting Pastor Ron. He will not be here this week. He will not be here next week. And for these two weeks, I will be covering the show for him. I did forget to mention something at the beginning. Let me mention it now. I actually heard from Pastor Ron and Paula right before the show started. They are doing well. They they picked up their rental car and the sun is shining bright, which is a blessing because the two weeks prior that uh, me and my family were there, it was mostly most. Yeah, mostly gloomy. There was some sun here and there, but I'm glad the sun is out for Pastor Ron. (laughs) He sends his love. Both he and Paula miss you already. They are going to enjoy their time there in the sun and relax. And then as the Lord speaks to them, they'll share their heart with you here back on the radio uh, when he gets back in two weeks. In the meantime, our show continues. Let me give you the phone numbers. You want to call in? 210-340-9585. That's 210-340-9585. Toll-free number is 877-630-5757. 877-630-5757. The email address, if you want to submit questions that way, is questions at calvarysa.com questions, that's plural, questions at calvarysa.com. We have our church app. You can use that to submit questions. We have the KSLR app. You can use that to listen live, especially when you're driving. There's a call now button at the top, and you'll be connected directly to the radio station to ask your question on the air. Also, on a side note, sometimes people call and they can't go on the air. They call the radio station and they submit their question to the producer that's on the radio station. You could do that also. Okay, let me go to the next question submitted. We don't have anybody calling on the line, so the next one is from Anonymous. Is 
your love is extravagant, and that's in quotes, appropriate for church. A lot of lyrics rely heavily on symbolism, and it sounds like a romance song if you don't know what the lyrics are referring to. Anonymous, I know exactly what you're talking about. There is, uh, uh, There are a handful of songs, and this one you point out in particular is one that I'm familiar with. Your Love is Extravagant, among other songs, yes, they use uh, heavy symbolism, and yes, there is romance. And to answer your question, uh, is it appropriate? Sure. I mean, if if the pastor of the church thinks it's appropriate, then they use it. Now, is there anything inappropriate biblically from the song? I would say no. Now, remember, the love of God demonstrated poetically through the Word of God is romantic. Now, what we have to do here, Anonymous, is separate in our current culture what we have absorbed to be worldly romantic versus what the Bible says a a love relationship looks like with God. I would point you to Song of Solomon. This is a very romantic, even sensual song. Descriptive, symbolic, and it's symbolic of the love that God has for us, using Solomon and his wife as an example. But that's the way that God loves us. So some churches may deem this song or others related to it as inappropriate. I don't see a biblical answer for that, but they get to choose whatever songs they they want to sing. Here at Calvary Chapel, we do sing this song occasionally. And even if some people may say that this isn't their personal preference in style or style of music, the one thing we have to remember Anonymous is that we are here to worship the Lord. Every church will do it in a different way, slight variations, but we want to worship the Lord sometimes in song, through the teaching of his word, uh, through the fellowship among the people. But everything we do is worship that points to God. And when we have a chance to sing about God's love, using the Bible as an example, you're never wrong. Again, Song of Solomon. It is a very romantic and symbolic book of the Bible that describes how deep his love is for us. So your love is extravagant, uh, anonymous, it's okay. And on a side note, tangentially related to this anonymous, uh, I, I don't know who you are and I don't know if you go to our church or a different church, but whatever church you're at, let me say this. Uh, it's, it, it's your right to have a personal preference when you're in your car and you get to choose what kind of music you listen to. But in church, when you're singing, 
and you're worshiping the Lord, uh, spend less time thinking about whether or not you like the song. Again, I get it. I have my own preferences too, just like everybody else. But if we spend less time thinking about the style of music and instead look at the, the lyrics and the words, especially if they're scripture just put to, put to music, that's a beautiful thing. So it's okay if lyrics rely on heavy symbolism and a romance song. Then I will add one more thing to this. There are songs, not the one you mentioned, but there are songs that are, well, like you described. They sound like songs you could just play on the radio that have nothing to do with Jesus or nothing to do with the Word of God. And those aren't songs that we would play here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, Again, nothing wrong with those songs, nothing wrong with music. You can listen to whatever you want. But that wouldn't be worship music that we would play for corporate worship. We don't like uh, songs that are overly descriptive or or misrepresentative of the Lord. And um, we want to make sure the song lyrics are are biblical, that they are words, uh, scripture put to music, and then you'll be okay. Here at Calvary Chapel, Pastor Lane does a wonderful job leading our worship ministry. And uh, Pastor Ron doesn't pick the songs. Uh, Pastor Lane, led by the Spirit of God, picks the songs, and he does that exact thing. Songs that are uh, hyper-emotional, unbiblical, those are not songs we're going to sing here, even if they may be slightly Bible-related. We're not singing songs to stir up emotions. We're not, we're not trying to create a, a mood environment. We want to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And for, for, for that here at Calvary Chapel, that just means we sing to the Lord with, with a grateful heart. And I hope you, Anonymous, get to do that same thing at your church. Thank you for your question. All right, Lewis has a doctrinal question. What is covenant theology, and is that what you teach at a CC, Calvary Chapel? Lewis, no, we do not teach covenant theology here at Calvary Chapel. I'll answer that second part of your question first, just so that we're clear. Um, but let me explain what the difference is. Again, uh, not a theologian, but I understand the differences. Uh, we here at Calvary Chapel are dispensationalist in our interpretation of the Scripture. And, and without getting too technical, what that means is that we believe, that we view Scripture and interpret Scripture uh, according to how God deals with people at different times. It doesn't mean he changes. It simply means the way he deals with them is different in different times. That means you have the dispensation uh, of the garden of innocence, which is different than the dispensation of the law, which would be dis- different than the dispensation of uh, of grace, which is what we are currently in. 
sometimes referred to as the dispensation of the church. So God doesn't change his character. He doesn't change who he is. But the way he deals with people in these different dispensations is a little different. Now, let me be clear. We learned that through Romans that, and through Galatians that Abraham, obviously living in a different dispensation than what we live in today, Abraham became a friend of God. God declared him righteous because of his faith in God. So even if dispensational theology says that God looks at different people, or looks at people differently through different times, doesn't mean that he changes in how we enter into a relationship with him. Because Abraham is a perfect example of that. Abraham obviously occurred or lived before the cross of Jesus Christ, but he still enjoyed a relationship with God through faith in God's word and what he said. Now, what your question was about was about covenant theology. We are not here at Calvary Chapel covenant theology or some would call replacement theology. I understand that may be a pejorative word to some but replacement theology really is the same thing as covenant theology in the fact in the sense that a covenant theology does not distinguish the church from Israel i'm sorry uh uh yeah they make them the same that's that's why some people call it replacement theology in other words god entered it into a covenant with his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. That same covenant continues into the New Testament, thereby having Israel replaced by the church. We do not teach that. We believe the simple reading of God's word clearly highlights that God has made promises to Israel that he will keep. At its core, replacement theology or covenant theology says that God lied, that he changed. He made a promise, but he's not going to keep it. Now, I understand that they they will allegorize some of those promises and sort of use some mental gymnastics to, to make them apply to the church, but they don't. When God promises Abraham that his borders and his lands will occupy certain spaces, that that isn't a promise that translates to Israel. That's a promise made. I'm sorry, a promise that translates to the church. That's a promise made to Israel. And so the dispensational approach to the interpretation of God's word, which is, again, what we have here at Calvary Chapel, simply differentiates, it clearly distinguishes a difference between Israel and the promises God made to Israel and the church. Israel and the church in covenant theology are the same, whereas in dispensationalist theology, they are distinct and different. And there are other differences, but that's the main one. 
And I think the simple reading of God's word, if you, again, look through the promises made through the prophets, uh, made to Abraham, specific to Israel, uh, there is no way to take those promises and apply them to the church. Now, on a side note, Lewis, the reason why dispensationalist theology or our approach, our dispensational approach to the Word of God is what we do is because it's the only way that the Bible makes sense. Now, again, this is not a pejorative to any other theological persuasion, but when you look at the Bible and you simply read it at face value, take a literal approach to interpreting Scripture, it becomes painfully obvious that Israel is distinct from the church. So when we read the New Testament and we read about the, um, the Jesus will opening up the scroll uh, there in Luke chapter 4, we are entering into a new dispensation. This is the church dispensation. <clears throat> Excuse me, the church dispensation. Where, where we are not living according to the law or the old covenant, but Jesus is ushering in the new covenant. And in this new covenant, we can have our sins forgiven and be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. This is actually what Pastor Ron was talking about yesterday. It's very simple. And we believe that there is a time coming soon when Jesus will come and take his church. And those that are left behind in the world will enter into uh, a tribulation, a time of tribulation where judgment is being carried out to an unbelieving world. In the dispensational interpretation or dispensational theology, that's called the dispensation of judgment. And during that time, Israel then again becomes the focus because the church will be raptured from the earth. In other words, the church will be caught up into heaven. Those of us that are still alive will be with Jesus. And those that are left behind will enter into judgment. This is why, uh, Lewis, it's really important to study your, your Bible. So I hope that that helps. Thank you for your question. Okay, no questions on the phone line, so let's go back to our submitted questions. John says, I just finished the Old Testament, and I have a question. In Psalm 116, verse 15, it says, quote, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I don't understand the context to it. I know God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked from Ezekiel 33, verse 11, but is it different for his saints? John, great question. And so the answer is, it is different. But to quote Psalm 116, and the context of this psalm is important. When the psalmist writes that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He, he isn't saying that he loves to watch his people die. That is an incorrect 
interpretation. The word precious here refers to uh, more of a, a seriousness, a weightiness to the death of one of his children. It means that he takes this with a heavy heart. And you're right. He does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. But precious in the sight of the Lord does not mean he rejoices in the death of his saints. Now, there is a bittersweet side to the death of a believer. And we do this all the time at funerals. When a believer dies, they immediately go to be in the presence of the Lord, where there is no suffering, there is no sin, there is no disease. And, and in that sense, to be face-to-face of the love of your soul, Peter writes, that is the goal of our salvation, to come face-to-face with the one who saved us. That is precious. That is a beautiful thing. And that's something we all should look forward to as believers. But when the psalmist writes here in Psalm 116, precious in the sight, this is not about God rejoicing. It simply means that God, with his heart, he hurts. His heart is heavy when, the de- when there is a death among his people. So in fact, it reemphasizes, reinforces how God is so personal to us. It doesn't mean he rejoices in it, though he rejoices in the fact that we get to be in his presence. But his heart is also heavy for those of us that, that mourn the loss of loved ones. Like I said, uh, John, in funerals, this is something that we deal with all the time. And in funerals, we have to remember that funerals are for those of us that are still alive. Those that have passed on to be with the Lord, they're not suffering. But we are. And so we use words like this, verses like Psalm 116, to comfort and, and to console and to provide God's perspective in our suffering. John, again, thank you for your question. We are under five minutes, under four minutes, actually, so I do not have time to take a phone call. If you wanted to call, you can call in tomorrow. I'll be here to do the radio show. But in the meantime, I do have, I have less than three minutes to take this next question. Alex says, in Matthew chapter 8, why did the city beg Jesus to leave after he cured the two demon-possessed men. Alex, uh, I'm smiling as I read this question, not because of the demon-possessed men, but because this is such a, a normal response from our flesh. In short, Matthew 8, remember, when the... Demons were exercised uh, from the possessed men and into the pigs. The pigs went to go 
and leave or leave <laughs> fall off the cliff and they went to go die uh, so there's a twofold answer to this the people were angry at Jesus um, their livelihood just went and died and they were upset uh, but also they asked Jesus to leave the people did because they understood they were standing in the face in the presence of God in the presence of holiness and sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. You know, remember Peter, when he, in the boat, recognized who Jesus was. I mean, he bowed down. I think of Revelation. You know, when John himself was bowing down before the angel, the messenger, he recognized his own sinfulness. He bowed down. This is the normal response to to run away or to shy away from the holiness of God. And in this case, in Matthew chapter 8, it became clear that Jesus was God. He is the Son of God and God the Son, and demonstrated that by uh, having these demons leave these men. And the pigs had not really anything to do with it, but it was simply him demonstrating his power and proving who he was to the people, and that was their fleshly response instead of repenting. So, Alex, thanks for your question. You can hear the music. That means we are at the end of the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, My name is Pastor Ken. I'll be filling in this week and next week for my pastor, Pastor Ron, on The Word to Stand On for Life. We'll see you again. spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.